In this specially extended episode, we're joined by Jazznet Samurai and Adam, co-creator of Derby Against Hate. Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and not sure the great idea. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Debated Podcast. Uh, I'm Will, I'm one of the co-hosts, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Conrad. Hello. And this week's guest is... Oh, hi, I'm Jazz, and I'm from the Liberal Democrats, and I am a member of the South East Executive for the party. Right, well, um, let's get started. Uh, to begin with, I'd like to ask, what are your sort of like general feelings about the recent Conservative leadership contest? Um, how, how do you think it's going? What, what, what do you think each of the candidates will potentially offer the future of the country? Um, so... I mean, obviously, I don't think either of the two candidates lived in, especially when it comes to like their Brexit chances and things like that. Um, I find that you disagree with them. However, um, I just, I, I much prefer of Jeremy Hunt to Boris Johnson, um, but in my view, neither of them are fit to be prime minister. So mm. I think, I just think the Tory leadership contest has taken such a turn and it's a real shame to be honest. There are so many good Tory MPs and it's just a shame, you know, the ones that we're left with. It's a bit sad. Mm. Out, out of the um, Tory MPs, you said there's so many good ones. Who who would you have, out of the whole parliamentary Conservative Party, ideally have liked to see? Oh, ideally as leader. There was a fair Justine Greening, I think would make a really good leader. Um... I think Chloe Smith would make a good leader. Um, you know, there are lots of moderate Tory MPs out there. Um, you know, I could name about 10 or 15 off the top of my head, but I just think that there is so much talent within that parliamentary party. And I feel like with the candidates that have been put, or even with the, say, the, the candidates who originally stood for the group, um, I do think that it is a shame to kind of you know, watch the Tory party take a real turn to the right. And I think that's really dangerous to the country. Um, so I don't necessarily think any of the candidates were representative of what the country wants. And that, that to me, is just a shame. And it's where democracy is kind of failing in a way. Mm, um, obviously, one of the most important uh, issues regarding uh, the Conservative leadership contest is Brexit. And I know that um, you're obviously... Uh, passionately campaigned against it do you think that there is a way that um either of the candidates can in any sense bridge the divide between uh leavers and remainers or do you think that this is going to be something going forward that is going to dominate our politics for a long time the sort of the divide between leave and remain um, so I think I think originally when the Brexit vote happened, I think it could have been Brits, say, um, you know, Theresa May's deal or her video that she wanted to put through. Um, I do think that that deal could have potentially bridged the country because it was a middle ground. Um, and I think the solution to Brexit, and that's this is going to be an unpopular thing to say, a little bit but I do think that the only way to truly bridge the country around the issue of Brexit is to 
have some sort of middle ground, something like a common market to think, oh, which is actually something that's advocated for um, privately within our party. Um, so I think that in order to bridge the country, we need a middle deal. However, I can't see that happening in the next um, few months because any attempt of finding a middle ground has been rejected. Um, and just the math isn't there. And I think it's not possible to achieve. So for me personally, I do think that a hard leave would be detrimental to our society, which is why I do firmly back remain now. Um, because I just think that, you know, sacrificing people's livelihoods isn't the way to go. And the reasons that people voted leave weren't necessarily due to the EU, they were due to other factors. Um, and I think now the government's goal should ultimately be to have another have another vote. So um, and Hopefully that will, you know, indicate where public mood is. And if public mood still suggests that they want Brexit to happen, then Brexit should happen. Um, but I do think that lots of facts have come to light since the referendum. And obviously, if you look at the business now compared to the referendum. And so I do think we need another vote. And after that, I do need to work on, say, bridging our communities and working on solutions and, you know, funding projects and putting an end to austerity and things like that as well. Do you think that any of the um, conservative, uh, conservative leadership candidates outside of Brexit policies have any ideas that you've thought are quite good or do you think that they're not saying enough out of their domestic policies? Yeah, that's funny. I feel like the news, well, I, I'm not an expert on the kind of leadership contest. Um, I've obviously been really, really heavily involved in our internal one, so I haven't had that much time to listen to most candidates. All I hear is what's been on the news and the big soundbites of the day. Mm. So for me, and I think this is how a large portion of the public feel too, is that the only things that I've really heard about the candidates for their Brexit stance is maybe like a few little nitty-picky domestic issues, but nothing of substance. And then obviously, you know, media things that are going on, so obviously Boris Johnson has been in the media a lot. Um, but for me personally, I feel like there is a big hole that we're missing in British politics at the moment. It's not just a conservative leadership, it's everything. But I feel like we're, we're ignoring domestic issues and instead focusing too much on Brexit. Um, because there are so many issues at home that we should be dealing with that we're not. Mm. And um, as you say, that there does seem to be sort of like a, a fight for... Um the centre ground of politics. I mean, Boris Johnson in a in a recent interview said that he wanted to be a prime minister from the centre right. Uh, Rory Stewart said during the leadership contest that he wanted to revive the centre. Do you think that after uh, years of being told that sort of the the centre of politics and uh, centrist politics are dead, do you think we're beginning to see a revival of the centre, or do you think? that this is all just sort of like show and this won't be backed up by policies that might be seen as centrist? Um, so I think politics has become incredibly polarised after the last, um, you know, over the last decade. Um, we've seen the rise of the far left, we've seen the rise of the far right. And I do think that it's natural to come back into the centre. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a new political alignment. Um, but I don't, I think having saying returning to the centre is a pretty vague term. Um, mm. And I do also think that not only are we seeing a return to the centre, I feel like we're seeing almost a return to, say, um, like liberal politics as well. I do think there's been a revival almost of liberalism. 
Um, and I feel like that's an element of it coming back into the centre. Well, I think they, I do think we've returned to the centre, but I also think that's just pretty vague, as in, like, what does this, what counts as the centre? You know, there's lots of opinion on that. So um, we've talked about the Conservative leadership contest, but obviously your party, the Lib Dems, has a leadership contest going on as well at the moment. Probably not as high profile, but you know, it's still going Probably. on. So um, who are you backing to be the next Lib Dem leader and why do you think they're better than the other candidates? I'm Ed Davey. And um, for me personally, both of them are good candidates. For me, Ed is the person you know makes me want to get out of my seat and campaign. And he's... I personally believe the only candidate who can truly provide direction for our party to head in um, because he has, you know, some solid, really solid proposals. Um, mm. It's not, for me, Ed isn't just soundbite. He's a genuine politician who has, you know, who cares about everyone. And I've seen this um, because obviously I'm, I'm based in Kent, so I'm really close to the London party, the parties that Ed represents and is really heavily involved in. And I've watched him encourage candidates to come forward. I've watched him, you know, tackle internal issues. I've watched him um, campaign for his constituents. So for me, you know, it's not just words, it's actions as well. Um, yeah, and he's really inspired me personally. Um, I wondered if you said that you're supporting Ed Davey, what you thought about um, a recent piece that he wrote for The Times in which he said that, he floated the idea of a Remain alliance to decapitate that blonde head in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Do you think that he was mistaken in using language like that to describe Boris Johnson? Um, so I do think so. For me personally, um, I don't think it's a problem just with Ed. I think it's a problem again with politics as a whole. And I, I like, as I keep saying, like constantly say it everywhere I go, I mm. do feel like politics has taken a really bitter turn recently. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where the language that is used to describe politicians has just is completely unacceptable. And I do think that's really, really dangerous. And I think it's not just Ed, again, it's all MPs, um, you know, or not all MPs, but you know, I've seen a wide, mm. a, from a wide spectrum of parties. Um, so I do think it's just a problem that needs to be tackled. And we need to tackle this toxic culture that is prevalent within our politics at the moment mm. uh, because it, it's just really negative and I don't think politics should be negative politics should be about change and debate and um, it doesn't have to have this negative element to it do you think the um, negative sort of element in politics is sort of putting off sort of younger people from getting involved definitely because if you look at young people and um you know what they stand for so a bit of background on me I um, used to be the youth chair for the southeast region. Um, so, you know, I work with young people really closely and I still do now. Um, and for me, I, I, I feel like young people are really opinionated. They're really passionate. Um, we might not agree on everything, like in terms of like young people, there's lots of debate within young people. But I do think that, um, you know, this discourse, this negative discourse is really pushing young people off the process because, mm. uh, but, Having an inclusive environment is so important, and I just don't see that happening. And whilst it's obviously prominent within with young people, if you even look at the pub, the public in general, I just feel like we're in such a dire time, and politics is becoming this kind of exclusive thing that isn't really relevant. And the the whole idea of you know abuse, toxic discourse, whatever, it's kind of pushing it into another box. Mm. 
mm. and making it, it it's completely separate from reality. Politics isn't representative of reality. There's a massive, massive divide at the moment. And we need to work on fixing that and building trust. And what this what your toxic behaviour is doing and these toxic terms and these you know, just abuse that lots of people in politics get, you know, idea that politics is a game. All it's doing is dividing that and it's separating the two. And what it's doing is it's stopping people from feeling like they can get involved. Hmm. Um, you wrote a piece uh, recently, January this year, uh, yeah. entitled "Arg, I Hate Politics. And, <laughs> and in the piece, um, you big. argue, yeah, uh, <laughs> in the piece, you argue that part of the reason um, the problem with youth uh, participation is because the system that politics relies on, the structure of politics, is somewhat set against young people. How yeah. do you think... Um, we can change that to make it more accessible to young people and make sure that they aren't put off from taking part in politics. So I spoke about, again, the issue of abuse briefly in that piece. Um, mm. And I feel like I've kind of outlined as to how, you know, we can be, how political parties as a whole, not just my party, but everyone needs to be more inclusive of young people. Um, but in terms of accessibility, things like, um, going to events and where events are held and things like that to say me there are there are times mm. where I've spent you know 50 60 pounds in one day going to an event yeah um because you know I as an elected person I obviously have to represent so obviously I've come from a local background as well so I, I've had to represent say my local area or my local youth division so I've had to mm. go to events and I've had to spend my money um, and as a young person, you know, that's really hard because you don't get that much money. And to be spending 60, 70 pounds in a day, and that's just on travel, and that, that's not even including accommodation. For me, that's, you know, a lot of money. And that's something that lots of young people can't do. Um, so again, you're, you're, it's the idea that politics is only available for a certain type of person, a certain type of elitist. Mm. Um, and for me, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, the poshest person um i come from a working class background i go to state school even though i got into grammar school which i'm really lucky and grateful for that um but you know in order to do these things i have to sacrifice a lot like i don't really go out um, that much with my friends and money on is very very different to, the, to my peers um so for me personally i think you know politics a needs to become more affordable and political parties can do that by you know providing subsidies and things to young people and making events cheaper. So there are times where I've sat in meetings for um, party events and it will be like, you know, if you have a formal dinner with MPs and stuff and they'll charge £200 a ticket. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, what young person would it, can afford £200 a ticket? Yeah. I was like, you know, I barely earn that in a month. <laughs> um, that, you know, that disconnect again between people in power and young people is humongous. And it, it needs to be you know, I, de- I definitely think agree with your broad point about um, young people and politics and things being too expensive. I found that in the Conservative Party that there are a lot of events, and you think is that worth it? You know, when I, you know, for, for, for what I'm paying, for what I'm getting out of that, you know, it's all all very well for like a wealthy pensioner to 
be paying that money but it's a bit different for like a student who's you know making ends meet yeah. but um play devil's advocate a little bit um do you think that sort of obviously all parties are kind of strapped for money they've got a load of campaigns going on elections happening all the time that they can't really afford to subsidize like sort of younger students and younger people because they've got so much else that they've got going on yeah but it's a matter of priority so for me i see getting young people to events as almost as a thing that should happen because ultimately if you don't get young people to events what happens is a decisions are made by you know the older generation young people don't get a say in the world that affects them and internal party politics and for me that really saddens me um because I just feel like young people don't have a voice and even in society in general they don't really have a voice and if you're going to again keep them further away from the procedures mm. that make change that's an issue um, and then also if you look at things like you know getting young people to events what you're doing is if it's a training day or something you're you know you're investing in the future of the party too if we can get young people trained if we can give them the skills that they need Hopefully we'll, you know, bring down the average age of our parliamentary party. Um, hopefully we'll, you know, have these skills. We'll have these new campaigners who can actually, you know, revive their parties um, in down the line. You know, you're, you're investing in a person. By mm. subsidising eventual, you're giving people the skills that they need. And political parties should see that that's a benefit because what they end up with is more skilled campaigners and activists. Um, so it's a mutual benefit. And I really don't understand why parties don't, invest money into young people like to me it, it doesn't make sense i understand that they're stripped for cash and i understand that obviously elections are expensive and targeting is expensive and leaflets are expensive and you know everything is really expensive but i just think there are things that parties spend money on that don't need to be spent money on if you get yeah. what i'm saying like yeah. i just there are times when money is spent and decisions are made and i think why are you spending this much money on this like, as an example, within my party, um, there was a campaigner who dedicated thousands of pounds, I'm not going to say how much, but thousands of pounds to creating an app for Compton. Mm-hmm. This app never got created, and this money just got through down the drain. And I was thinking, you could have spent that on useful things. Yeah. Just moving on uh, slightly, the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election is coming up, and it looks like it could be a, a close contest between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. What do you think are the chances of the Lib Dems taking that seat from the Conservatives? Um, so I do think that we could win it. I think it, you know, it's it's one of our most winnable seats in Wales. Um, mm-hmm. so I do think there is a good chance that we win it. Obviously, the circumstances around the by-election aren't the best for the Tories yeah. as well. So I do think that we have an ad factor there. Um, also, you know, we have the largest membership we ever have had. And obviously, because it's the only by-election at the moment in terms of parliamentary by-elections, we hmm. will have constant activists visiting that area, you know, doing walks, um, campaigning. And it's a chance to really get... The candidate Jane Dodds has in that community and getting mm-hmm. to know the issues there. Um, I, you know, I've been following her close. He, I, I love her Instagram. <laughs> I, try, I try to stalk that. Um, but um, I know that a lot of work has gone there. And also, obviously, we have Percy Williams there as well, who's currently the AM for that area, mm-hmm. a member of the Senate. So I do think there's a really good chance that we can win that seat. And I feel like 
after the European elections, we as a party have that momentum to win that seat. Um, and for me, that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, I do think oh. my party's pretty good. Obviously, um, the Brexit Party have also said that they're going to stand a candidate in the by-election. It's an area that they've done quite, did quite well in the European elections. What are your thoughts on sort of the threat posed by the Brexit Party and their impact on politics more generally? Um, so, for me, I think the Brexit Party were actually somewhat inevitable. Mm. And my reasoning for that is politics, again, has become extremely polarised over Brexit. Um, the Conservatives and the Labour Party are failing to appeal to the to the proportion of the population that is, you know, a hard Brexit supporting, um, and that's a feeling that has, you know, existed for a long time. Um, so the area that I live in, Rochester and Shrewsbury constituency that I live in, um, it's an ex-Ukip constituency. It's a very hard new constituency, and I remember in 2017, even in local elections, we had that feeling of. Neither of the main two parties are, um, you know, standing up for what I believe in. And whether I agree with that or not, it's clear that there is a disillusionment between the public and the two main parties at the moment. Um, so I do think that something had to fill that, again, hole in British politics, and the Brexit Party obviously did. Um, and do they pose a threat? Well, I mean, I feel like that's a big question. If you look at the MEP elections, for example, they did incredibly, incredibly well. Um, maybe not as well as they'd like, but they did mm-hmm. do well. And I do think they suppose the threat in terms of winning seats is perfectly possible that they win seats. I mean, if you look at areas of the country where, um, so say my, my constituency, for example, the Brexit Party got something like 30,000 votes, whereas we mm-hmm. came second and we got 8,000. So again, that, that clear majority for the Brexit Party shows that, yeah, they probably do pose a threat in individual constituencies. And if there was a general court and they had 650, 650 candidates, there would be a good chance that they'd get, you know, a good few seats. I mean, by a few, I mean probably about dozens. Yeah. So, for me personally, I I think I think they are a threat, but I do think they're a short-term threat. It's a single-issue party. Um, whatever happens in Brexit, if there's a hard Brexit, whether the Brexit party will go away. If there's a second referendum, you know, the Brexit party and remain win, the Brexit party will go away. So I think in the long term, I don't think they're a threat. I just think for now, they're a symbol of how volatile politics is as a whole. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I've got uh, one final question for you, Jazz. Uh, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could have only one luxury item with you, what would it be? That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Um I don't really know, to be honest. What counts as a luxury item? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know, a, a life supply of chocolate, a particular book, something something like that. Is, is, is there anything in particular that comes to mind, or...? Um, so... It's actually a really hard question. I'm just thinking on the spot now. <laughs> You've got me. I didn't think this was the one that was going to get me. Um... <laughs> um I don't really know, to be honest. I think I'd probably take... Again, you mentioned a book, and there was a book that came to mind. The book that came to mind was We Were Liars by Emily Lockhart. Uh By the way, it's a brilliant read. I would highly suggest you read it. It's not (laughs) political-related at all as well, so good good escapism there. 
um, but basically it's one of those books that you know like really motivate me to get up and make change and it doesn't it's one of those books about you know it's a fictional book but it's an like yeah. kind of a sort of autobiographical thing based on real events um, but for me I think that would be the book that I choose because I just it would just encourage me to carry on I feel like a desert island would be really boring and I'd just be yeah. stuck in the middle of nowhere and you know, I just need hope, and I just need something to like cling on to and be like, yeah, it could get worse. My house could get on fire. So. <laughs> so, um, welcome to the podcast, Adam. It's great to have you on. Uh, do you think, to begin with, you could explain? What's been happening in Derby North, and w- what the sort of the general situation is for anyone who doesn't know? Sure. Uh, so the situation in Derby North is a bit complicated uh, and is in flux. So what we're saying now might not be true by the time uh, this goes live. But essentially, what happened was uh, over a, a period of time uh, in uh, the MP for Derby North, Chris Williamson, uh, who was a Labour MP now is a Labour MP and may no longer be a Labour MP uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, he gaslit Jews uh, for a considerable number of uh, a considerable amount of time. Uh, he uh, retweeted or was associated with out and out anti-Semites, including people who um, had like questioned the numbers who had died in the Holocaust or who uh, had even questioned whether or not the Holocaust had happened itself. Um, and this all uh, boiled up until about February this uh, this year when Chris Williamson, uh, at a meeting of Sheffield Momentum, said uh, to rapturous applause that the Labour Party had been too apologetic on the issue of anti-Semitism. Uh, that, after a while uh, and after a half apology uh, from Chris Williamson, got himself suspended until two members of a three-member panel voted to uh, re-accept Chris Williamson into the party. That was met quite sensibly with uh, a wide degree of scorn and outrage uh, from the entire party, uh, left, centre and the right wing of the party. Uh, And it is looking like that that is going to get overturned in the next couple of weeks by the full NEC. What that means for Chris, we are yet to find out whether that will be he gets suspended for a year or six months or is forced to go on some kind of re-education program in order to then be re- readmitted into the party is unclear and how much he is able to learn from that is also unclear because he's already had meetings with uh, representatives of the Jewish communities uh, that are involved in the Labour Party uh, with not much success. So I'm personally sceptical about his ability to understand what he's done wrong, but it will be interesting to see where we move forwards. Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you're the co-founder of Derby Against Hate. What would you say is the aim of your campaign? And is it um, just to deal with the, the problems arising from Chris Williamson or does it have a, a, a broader uh, range of activities and a, and, and a broader uh, agenda? So, yeah, that's a really good question. We we founded a Twitter account uh, called, which is at No Hate in Derby or Derby Against Hate, uh, in the wake of the news about Chris Williamson, because we were just fed up with the amount of racism and anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance within Derby as a city and also uh, 
more specifically to do with the Labour Party uh, within within Derby. And we were really disappointed to see the the result of the NEC three panel meeting. And we that was a kind of like the the impetus for us to set this up. Um, but we also have in our city more UKIP councillors now than we did in 2016. We gained two UKIP councillors in the election uh, just locally uh, in the 2019 local elections, and we uh, had two elected in 2018 as well. In 2020, so next year, we're likely, if we don't do anything about it, to see another two or three UKIP councillors be elected. Um, and that needs a bigger conversation as well. But the only way we're ever going to be able to deal with that problem is if we get our own house in order first. So why do you think there is such a great deal of anti-Semitism on the left and in particular in the Labour Party? What, what do you think is the root cause of it? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big question that I think better people than me are are placed to answer, uh, particularly people who are uh, Jewish themselves or, or have studied this academically. I would imagine that there is a, just a great deal of ignorance about anti-Semitism, what is and isn't anti-Semitic, what is and isn't um, gaslighting for Jews, what is and isn't uh, just really offensive or not willing to say. I think people get very defensive about uh, their idols. Um, so Chris Williamson is obviously a very uh, long-standing member of the left within Derby, and he is adored by a lot of people who see him as a, a leading light, a true socialist and that kind of thing. And he is is well liked by a lot of people so i think people have rushed to defend him because they think oh well chris williamson has never done anything wrong to me and he's always been a supporter of the causes i believe in so therefore i can't possibly believe that uh, jewish people would be offended by what he's been saying so i think there that there is a reluctance to deal with the problem of anti-semitism when it's people that you like uh, engaging with anti-semitic ideas or people um but i think that generally uh, I can't really say an answer more specifically than that about why there is a large amount of anti-Semitism on the left. How do you think the Labour Party can tackle anti-Semitism more effectively? So again, Jewish organisations can answer this uh, more specifically, but generally we just need to massively overhaul our disciplinary procedures. They are an absolute joke. Um, they need to be made independent. They need to be taken out of the control of a group of uh, people on the NCC or the NEC. And they need to be much more transparent. They need to happen a lot more quickly. And they have to actually like inform the people who are involved. So Chris Williamson tweeted the other day, and I've no reason to not believe him, that he still hasn't heard from the NEC or the NCC what the resolution to his case actually was. So he is still in the dark about what happened. There was no like press release or anything that I've seen uh, from the committee that said what happened. It was just somebody told a reporter who wrote for Political Home, who then put it on their website. This isn't how like we should be dealing with our disciplinary cases. It should be transparent. It should be independent and it should be efficient. Uh, and I really hope that conference this year takes up some kind of amendment in order to make that happen um, because that should apply to sexual harassment, that should apply to anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia uh, and all of these problems are in the Labour Party. If the Labour Party has 500,000 members or whatever it is, we are going to have some of those people who are um, either sexist or racist or homophobic. It's, it's a part of being an organisation this big. The way you get around that is, is by having an independent process that deals with it when it happens. Um, and until that is in place, I don't think anyone will have any faith in the disciplinary process of the Labour Party.
Mm. Uh, we talked about this on the podcast uh, in the last episode uh, when we spoke to Daniel Sugarman, and we talked about it a couple of weeks before when we talked to George Ayler. And I think it's interesting what you say about um, ensuring that something has to go forward at conference. Do you think that the only way that this can be really, really dealt with is if there is a change to the rules of the Labour Party that make it easier to deal with this sort of abuse? Um, I, I don't know. I know that the Labour Party passed an amendment um, which ruled out any kind of anti-Semitism or, or Islamophobia or any form of racism a while ago. And it'll be interesting to see if that is enough or if new rule changes need to happen. Um, I think it's more about the fact that the process needs to be transparent. It needs to happen faster and it needs to uh, be independent. I think you probably wouldn't need to change that many rules in order to set up. Um, but, but better people than me will be able to explain more specifically about what should happen in terms of Labour Party rules. Do you think that this and the other cases of anti-Semitism have somewhat tarnished the Labour Party's image? I think, I mean, of course it has. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can only, yeah, like having anti-Semites in our party and having people who are friends with anti-Semites in our party is is obviously going to tarnish our image, not only with the Jewish community, but with the wide the wider public uh, as a whole and just any kind of like ordinary person who doesn't like racism is going to think badly of the Labour Party because of the number of anti-Semites that we've still got in our party. Um, so what do you think if um, Chris Williamson does end up finally leaving the Labour Party, what do you think will be the lasting impact of that? I think you'll have left the Derby Labour Party in a much weaker position to fight UKIP, fight the Tories and fight the Lib Dems. I would say that in 2018, one of the reasons why we went backwards rather than forwards was because, and lost control of the party, was because of his actions and, and what he was saying. Uh, and I think that it will take quite a long time for the new MP for Derby North to regain trust within the communities here uh, in order to say the Labour Party has dealt with uh, Chris Williamson and his problematic uh, statements and beliefs and we uh, are moving forwards in a way that is inclusive of everybody um, and hopefully once that new MP or, or new candidate is in place we will be able to regain control of Derby City Council uh, in order to get rid of the UKIP councillors, get rid of the Lib Dems who have been um, tolerating the UKIP presence and, and working with them to keep the Tory uh, administration in power uh, because at the end of the day, it isn't just a problem about UKIP being on the council. They could they could have four councillors in zero power, but they, mm-hmm. they have power because they're propped up by the Lib Dems and by the Tories, both of which are collaborating with UKIP to keep Labour out of uh, office. So after if Chris Williamson does uh, get kicked out of the party or resigns or is deselected, then then hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to rebuild and then concentrate on fighting the hatred from, from UKIP that we see in our city. Uh, finally, um, where are there any petitions or uh, letters that people can sign encouraging the Labour Party to reverse this decision? I mean, obviously, there's your Twitter account uh, that people can follow. What other um, methods are there that people can support a change in the decision? 
Yeah, so there are plenty of different letters from different groups of people floating around on Twitter that anybody can find probably just by searching Chris Williamson in a letter. But uh, the key things that I think that we need people to be doing at the moment is, first of all, they need to write to their NEC representatives uh, on the on the NEC and ask them, especially um, the members who are involved in the decision, uh, they need to be asked why did they decide that in that way. So if you're a BME person in particular, then write to Keith Vaz because he is your uh, representative, but then also uh, write to the the nine or maybe eight. Don't write to Peter Warsman; he's probably not going to help you. But write to the eight um, uh, CLP reps and ask them where they stand on Chris Williamson. Do they think Chris Williamson should remain suspended? Do they think that Chris Williamson uh, should be kicked out of the Labour Party? And when should that happen? Uh, the second thing people should do if they have a Labour MP is make sure their Labour MP has signed the Labour Party letter, uh, Labour MP's letter, sorry, uh, that is going around, um, including uh, making sure they'll vote to suspend Chris Williamson from the Parliamentary Labour Party, because even if he rem- is readmitted into the, the Labour Party, he can still be suspended by the PLP uh within Parliament, which will be at least uh, a step in the right direction. And then thirdly, they need to either email us or contact us on Twitter, especially if they live within Derby um, and Derby North in particular, or have any friends that do so, uh, because we're trying to organise as many people who are against all forms of racism and intolerance in order to uh, move forwards with our campaign, uh, both in the first instance against uh, Chris uh, and, and moving towards deselection for him, but also uh, with regards to fighting UKIP and fighting uh, the Lib Dems and Tories who have uh, collaborated with UKIP moving forwards. Well, uh, thank you for being on the podcast, Adam. It's been great to have you on, and I wish you all the the highest amount of success with your campaign. No problem. Thank you. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at the debated podcast at gmail you can follow us on twitter debated podcast like our facebook page and uh, hopefully stick around for the next episode <laughs>